Welcome to Liberty Monks Podcast. James Mundy here with Mike Mundy. How are you doing tonight? Brother Mike. I'm doing fabulous, sir. How are you? I'm doing great, man, and I'm doing great. We have a very special guest in our virtual studio. Tony Schaefer is a retired lieutenant colonel in the United States Army, a New York Times bestselling author, co-producer of the National Geographic series Chain of Command, and CAA-trained intelligence operations officer with 35 years of experience in global and national security. Colonel Schaefer's literary works include his New York Times best uh, international bestseller memoir, Operation Darkheart, and his latest novel, The Last Line. And currently, he's the president of the London Center for Policy Research, where among many projects, they're in front, uh, um, they are front and center, I'm sorry, in the fight to save our Second Amendment. Colonel Schaefer, welcome to Liberty Monks. Well, hey, thank you for having me. I consider it an honor to be joining you guys, and uh, I appreciate the time to spend uh, talking to you all about this. And and uh, it's uh, it's a timely uh, interview by the fact that I think there's so much chaos going on. I appreciate you guys trying to help the public understand better what that chaos is and how to how to deal with it. Uh, much appreciated, and I know that you're doing uh, a ton of work in that arena, too, trying to educate people on the reality of what's going on in this world. And to your point, it's extremely complex, and there's a lot of moving pieces here. Right. Um, so we feel fortunate that we have the opportunity to talk to you today. Oh, thank um, you. And, and I know, listen, I know I mean, you've had an amazing military career. Uh, we could talk all day about that. And you've been involved in cyber operations, anti-terrorism, right? Um, you've conducted black operations. Uh, you've have, you've surveilled uh, Soviet military officers visiting the U.S. You've ran special access programs uh, that netted high-value targets, especially in the 91 Gulf War, counter-drug operations, and after 9-11 attacks specifically, you spent two combat tours in Afghanistan searching for senior al-Qaeda leaders, correct? That's correct. And I ran an operating base that uh, ran uh, a covert action in uh, sub-Saharan Africa right after 9-11, yes. Yeah, I think you did more in that paragraph than I've done my entire life. <laughs> <laughs> so uh very cool man um well what you might might most be famous for actually is your work on the counterterrorism project able danger right and, yeah. and, this, and this, then the subsequent whistleblowing on the government what exactly was able danger and what led you to speak out about about all this so, yeah thank you for bringing it up and i appreciate the the question um well as you know from my career i i was never uh, afraid to kind of go in and do things that others were reluctant to do. And um, this came from a, a basic philosophy. When I was a captain, um, I was working some off-the-book operations. I was just brought in to run something called Carolina Morning. It's in my retirement bio. Uh, I can't go into all the details, but that operation resulted in me meeting uh, my current friend and colleague, Jim Woolsey, who was director of CIA at the time. And people always wonder, like, how did you get into everything you were doing is because I would go in and do, I was just fearless. Like I didn't, most people who are rational, apparently, I didn't know this, consider all these high risk operations uh, dangerous to the careers. And I just never cared. It's like, really? Is this dangerous? Like, it's like, this is what you're supposed to be doing. And so many people were really cautious about what they would accept. And, and for better, or for worse, I wasn't. I always wanted to go do these hard things. And so when I was a captain, I saw all these colonels at Intelligence Security Command. I called them iron colonels. Uh, they always uh, would act. Uh, uh, they were basically uh, ending their career. And inevitably, they would have the courage to act on their convictions. They would always do the right thing. And it was because they were on their terminal assignment. They were, they were done. So they, they would always do what they thought was best. So I figured 
man, that, there's something to that. So from captain on, I always considered uh, whatever rank I was at is my, this is, I would pretend it's my last assignment. I'm just going to do what I think is best. And it got me into a lot of trouble, but it, it gave me the courage of my convictions, just basically understanding I'm, this may be the end, deal with it and go forward. And so eventually it all catches up to you. <laughs> it does become the end. But I had a great time pushing hard and, and doing things no one else is willing to do. And I, I appreciate the opportunities. Um, so that brings me to Able Danger. So the um, late 90s was a very interesting time uh, to live through. It was the time of the X-Files, the time of new technology, the time of uh, the so-called... Uh, Cold War dividend, you know, the war, wall had come down. Oh, we have no enemies now. And the late 90s uh, was shaping up to be uh, quite a, a, a time of, of change that people didn't really recognize. The Internet coming on. Uh, one of the things my unit was doing, Stratus Ivy, we uh, launched the first undercover cyber unit within DOD. And it was with a hybrid team of NSA uh, techs out of a number of groups. I don't want to get into the names, they, the, the, the group specific nomenclature that still may be classified, and some DIA computer techs combined with some DOSD uh, black programs. And we were uh, actually working with the DISA, Defense Intel Information Security Agency, uh, System, uh, Defense Information Systems Agency, the communications backbone of the Pentagon. We were actually watching the Chinese come uh, via Canada into our uh, uh, unclassified backbone using Canadian teenagers as hackers. They would recruit these kids in chat rooms and use them to penetrate our network using our own uh, bulletins of of uh, of uh, vulnerability basically our our system would publish vulnerabilities telling all the the uh, admins go fix these well inevitably somebody wouldn't fix it so you take this bulletin you give it to the canadian kids they start probing the infrastructure from canada not from china and they find a vulnerability They're quite brilliant so we were it was our job. Part of part of our job was to detect and counter this. Uh, there were early wars that no one knew about regarding cyber. Anyway, in addition to that, my mission was to provide uh, this kind of support to special mission units, the tiered units. And um, w during my annual training, because I was also a GS-14 civilian, uh, which, by the way, I get to retire as a GS-14, so that's coming up. Um, I um, with pension, I hope with pension. Yes, thank you. It's like it, you, you see the, these these trolls on it. Yeah, on he's not getting the, a pension. It's like uh, no, I'm getting I'm getting to. Sorry, right. I know it's like no, dude, wake up. Anyway, so my point being, on this uh, operation, uh, I was down in Tampa. Uh, I was actually down doing an annual training, uh, and uh, one the DIA rep Al Downs uh, says, "Hey." Why don't you go brief the the commander, the sink, uh, the four star on your your civilian job? <laughs> it's like, oh, okay, sure. So I don't, you know, I don't know how well you know the military. It's pretty unusual for a reservist to just go brief the commanding general of a whole, you know, global command on what he does in his civilian role. So I appreciate that. Yeah. So uh, anybody listening to this understands how kind of like that's that's not doesn't usually happen, but it did. And so next thing I know, I'm asked to go in and brief Pete Schoomaker, General Schoomaker, the then commander of SOCOM. I think it was 99 on uh, all these black operations I was doing. The thing I just told you about and some other things. 
And so General Schoonmaker sits back about two-thirds of the way through the briefing, looks over at, at one of his colonels and says, you need to reach Schaefer into able danger and do it tomorrow. And I didn't think anything. I was like, uh, okay, you know, whatever. So it was, it was a job interview almost. Yeah, I, apparently it was, and I didn't know it. Yeah. You know, and they're here, you know, I'm supposed to be a spy, and I didn't figure it out. Yeah. So, so next thing I know, the next day, Captain Scott Philpot, who's then a, a, just a commander, uh, but he's instant, he's a big part of the story. He's another one of the whistleblowers. Comes and, and gets me, uh, takes me out of uh, out of the office we're in, and takes me down to the, what we call the STO, the Special Technical Operations uh, Directorate, where all the black operations are. And he sets me down at a desk. And he says, "You're being read into able danger. Please read this." And I start reading it, and it's like, "Holy cow! This is like an, this is like an, uh, like a, a, a Disney ticket." Uh, all expenses paid to Disneyland just for spies and, and special operations. This, we're going to go after Al Qaeda. That's what it was. It was this was the plan to go hard against Al Qaeda. I remember the, the time was we had already suffered the embassy attacks. We had not suffered the coal attack. That's that's another piece of the story that we can talk about at some point. And this was the plan to go after. And it was uh, aggressive. Uh and basically, it was the first of its kind. It's like Special Operations Command, first time ever in its history, was the lead sink. They were the, in the lead. Other times, they were supporting other commands, other regional commands. This was the first time Special Operations Command was said, go anywhere you need to to go after these guys. So it was an amazing operation. And it wasn't about data mining. Everybody keeps saying, oh, it was a no, 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 no. Uh, Operation Able Danger was for the prosecution of multiple F, uh, multiple lines of effort to identify and defeat Al Qaeda. That's it. That's what the job was. It, it was it was quite simple, and because we were talking about a global target. Uh, global targets were something that the U.S. had not done well targeting because they're global and we're organized regionally. Uh, we had to find a different way of targeting them, a, a methodology which would work to map them. And that's how the Able Danger data mining thing happened uh, with land information warfare activity. Uh, we tried; They tried a number of ways to map al-Qaeda globally. It didn't work. Uh, they'd use a lot of conventional methods. And I came to them one day and said, look, there's these real radicals at Fort Belvoir at the Information Dominance Center, uh, who, you know, information operations. You got to go talk to them because I, they, they know what they're doing regarding uh, a new methodology called data mining. And remember, back in that time, nobody knew about data mining. As much as it's used now commonly, it was it was barely known. And we were the first uh, unit to, to implement that operationally. Other people were experimenting with it. We were the first ones to use it operationally. Another controversial point uh, of the operation. So that that is able danger, essentially. It was this uh, uh, Hugh Shelton. Uh, Hugh Shelton thought it up as, as chairman of the Joint Chiefs. Uh, a guy named Colonel Joe Dunford, you might remember him as General Joseph Dunford, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs. Mm -hmm. Colonel Joe Dunford wrote up the plan when he was uh, the ex executive officer of Shelton, and that, sh that plan was given to General Schoomaker to, um, to implement. And then we all came in to help figure it out. And it was a black operation. A lot of people weren't told about it, uh, I think, to our, to our chagrin based on what happened and not sharing information adequately or widely enough to, to get uh, the warnings out regarding what we had found. 
Gotcha. Now, you know, so Able Danger was actually canceled just a few months, right, before yeah. 9-11. Now, is, is, is that just a coincidence? I mean... Boy, we don't know. This is one of those things, and I think you guys will appreciate this. I try to only stay to the story I know for, for me personally. Mm-hmm. I've been asked to jump into the whole 9-11 thing a number of times. Like, look, I don't know what happened. I don't know what NORAD did. I don't know mm-hmm. what uh, what Dick Cheney did. You know, I don't. I have no idea. Should you find out? Absolutely. Should there be a new investigation? Absolutely. Right. All we know is that after developing options, very comprehensive options regarding specific locations, uh, they, there was an O plan that linked uh, target to capacity. Now, what that means in, in, in civilian speak is basically you have uh, something you you, you want to do something against a target, and then you have a, a range of options like units capabilities Mm -hmm. that can be used to counter it. Uh, People don't like me talking about this, but it's it's, able danger was a plan to go out and kill people. Uh, It it, it was, it was the idea of defeating Al Qaeda uh, on call. That's what it was like the the moment the the president, wherever he is says, go out and kill these people. You take, you know, your Swiss army knife of, of units and you go do something against the targets you have available to for you to, to reduce, 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 mm-hmm. kill. So that's what it was. And we still to this day do not know what happened because General Hugh Shelton was briefed on this options package in January of 2001. And that's where the story of mm-hmm. able danger kind of ends until we get to the hearings in 2004 and 2005. Gotcha. Now, there, there's an author, Thomas Votto. He has a great quote about coincidences. Um, I'm sure you can appreciate. Action is one, two is a coincidence, three of them forms a trend and suggests a pattern. So yeah. we're looking in the last 24 months, we have seen, and, and I mean, you get the, um, the mainstream media and a, a lot of other folks using terms like conspiracy theory and all this stuff, but we, but we're, we're compiling all this evidence, right? So we've seen the, the Russian collusion hoax. We've right. seen impeachment. We've seen a COVID pandemic, lockdown. Uh, we've seen the election, and, and and many people think that that was stolen away from the Republicans. Um, you got censorship and an, and an unbelievable censorship with big tech right now. Right, and you have you have you have small businesses being just collapsed by by large ones because of the rules of engagement that a lot of governors have put in force during this pandemic. Right, and right. then now we're seeing unprecedented illegal immigration. So. Again, are, are we just the untimely victims of a series of crazy, nutty coincidences, or are we witnessing the execution of a strategy? So, um, boy, I hate to, we mentioned this before I went on the air. My nickname at Defense Intelligence Agency was uh, Spooky, uh, based on the, the stuff I mm-hmm. did regarding uh, X-Files type things. And I hate to say it, but I think we are indeed now uh, living the X-Files. Uh, one of the things uh, to continue and finish my, my my answer to the question you gave me, plus to lead into what you just asked, is how I became a whistleblower. I didn't. I became a whistleblower not because I thought there was conspiracy. Mm-hmm. I just went to Congress to ask for money to uh, help the Navy pick up and do a new able danger to say, hey, this this actually you know detected the bad guys. We should do this again. I wasn't out. Yeah, I wasn't out to like. Uh, blow the whistle. I was just there to ask for money. And then during, well, I was asked, you know, uh, uh, up representing, the, by the way, this is talk about irony, an, an, an army guy representing the Navy, the Navy's mm-hmm. interests, asking for money for a Navy program, because I was attached to the Navy at the time, 
when I did this. And um, so I was asked uh, the question, Colonel Schaefer, uh, what happened to the original money we gave you for this back in the 90s? It's like, oh, and I just laid out the whole story. Uh, some of the story I just gave, gave you guys, I laid yeah. it out. Uh, for those curious about the entire way this got into the 9-11 the, the Commission, they can read in my book uh, the uh, the chapter where I talk about meeting with Phil Zelikow, the staff director of the 9-11 Commission at Bagram in October of 2003. That's how I made my disclosure. And I told uh, Congressman Kurt Weldon the same story I told um, uh, Zelikow. It's like, hey, this is what happened. And so I didn't recognize until the end of that meeting that something was really wrong. Because I always believed the information I provided to the government at that to that point in time was being reviewed and uh, assessed by the 9/11 Commission, just to come find the 9/11 Commission ignored completely the existence of what we were doing. Why would they do that? Why would a commission who's seeking the truth decide to delete uh, or pre prevent any acknowledgement uh, of um, an operation which was had detected? Two of the three cells that, that conducted the attacks and went even further to, to try to come after whistle, you know, me as I didn't know as a whistleblower, just come after me for even talking about it. why would you do that? Why would you do that? And I think that's where we're at. We're to the point now where I think we all have to recognize that something is really wrong. Yeah. Um, after a certain point of people recognizing that um, that there are large elements of the bureaucracy which are not dedicated to preserving the security of the American people, you have to start asking, why is that? And so much of this goes back to the individuals who are still in the system. By the way, most people don't understand this. The people who are most responsible for the 9-11 failures did not get fired. They got promoted. And it seems to me every time we've had a critical failure of national security, those who are most responsible uh, are never held accountable and are simply promoted. So that's another clue I think people ought to look at. Those folks are promoted? Of course, not a single individual who actually was was engaged in the failure of the 9-11 attacks from tenant on down. Not a single person got fired over 9-11. Not one. Wow. That's well, if incredible. You, if you fire someone, you admit, you're admitting guilt. So you got That's right. Yeah. Yeah. No, I've argued, I believe, from the day one that the able danger cover-up was more about covering their ass yeah. and trying to prevent uh, any accountability than anything else. But I, maybe there's more than that at, at play here based on the patterns we're seeing now. Well, and, and when we're seeing, uh, to the point we just talked about, we're seeing all these different areas uh, being attacked or exposed. And one of the things that we saw was a, uh, obviously, we're, we have election integrity issues here in the United right. States, right? And so, you know, there's audits going on in several states. What are they finding in these audits? So I don't, I, I don't know. I'm kind of waiting yeah. to see what comes out of, uh, look, I'm friends with Kelly Ward, and full disclosure, I'm, I'm friends with Kelly Ward in Arizona. You know, she's... She runs the Republican Party there, yeah. and uh, uh, I, I'm curious as you guys. Uh, I actually testified about a month ago, a month and a half ago. I'm a, a considered an election security expert. Mm -hmm. I actually testified in Texas, South Carolina, Georgia, uh, Pennsylvania like five, six times. I actually testified about six, uh, six weeks ago in front of the Pennsylvania uh, legislation uh, virtually the same same place I'm sitting right now, but with a, with a more pro proper background. And I, I gave my testimony on what I believe needed to be done regarding Pennsylvania. And my belief is you need to do a forensic audit of everything. 
your audience may know that I was engaged in the investigation of uh, some of the fraud right after the election. Mm -hmm. um, I did an investigation of the pallet of ballots guy, of Jesse Morgan. Oh, the guy uh, from New York. The guy from New York who yeah. basically uh, testified, gave a sworn affidavit and evidence that he had moved uh, from Bethpage, New York to Lancaster, Pennsylvania, by our estimate, a full semi of what they call Gaylords. These are big boxes, about three foot by four foot boxes of trays of curated ballots, uh, a full 30 days before the election. 30 days uh, before the election. 30, this is a, full, a full 30 days. This is like, uh, like early October. Just saying, I just like, wow. that's a lot of ballots that were already, mm -hmm. they already curated, curated ballots. And then um, he moved them. Uh, we did a, a red team. One of the things I always do, uh, guys, I don't know if you know this, but probably not. I, anytime I'm given a challenge, I try to examine the infrastructure and how it's supposed to work. How, how, what is the optimal method of some something? How does it all work? And then we overlay what we know on a, on a variation. It's like, okay, this is what this guy's telling us. What, what does this mean? So we were able to map out what a normal transfer of bulk mail looks like and then have these guys look at Jesse's story. It's like, is this possible? Is this even like, you know, could this be done? Right. And, and the guy said, yeah, this is the way that could be done. These are the things to look at. These are the variables. These are the evidence. There's the electronic evidence. You can prove it within an hour if you get access to the U U.S. Postal Service security, uh, security system. I don't know if you guys know this. Everything in the postal system is pretty much under surveillance. Uh, uh, people log in and out every time a truck comes in. There's surveillance, video surveillance on everything. This story could be verified in a matter of, you know, just a few hours. Mm -hmm. Well, what I don't think you all, I think it's been talked about a little bit. Um, we were in the middle of this investigation. I had just done the press conference where we talked about, uh, it, it's still available. It's on President Trump's uh, YouTube as well. Um, we were in the middle of, of trying to get, the D, get this guy whistleblower status, because I think he was a whistleblower. He was actually trying to do the right thing and then try to, to get a, a hybrid team task force together to focus on going investigating the next pieces of this, which were who else was involved in the RICO to move these ballots. Uh, right as we were getting into doing all that, a guy you probably heard of, Bill Barr, mm -hmm. calls me, you know, Attorney General of the United States, <laughs> and says... Uh, Oh yeah, I, I get a call, I get a call from the AG all the time. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I mean, it was it was just like that. Hey, hey, Tony, it's Bill Barr. What's going on? <laughs> and so he proceeded to yell at me for thirty minutes and demand that I turn over my investigation to the FBI. Demand that wasn't demanded. You turn it over. Demand. And so we're now actually working. I'm working with members of the media to do a FOIA. I'd love to get a transcript of that call, by the way. I'm just saying it's like, I, sure. you know, and I'd like to get the audio of it, too. But I've talked to a number of folks, former attorney generals, to include uh, Ken Cuccinelli, former attorney general of Virginia. I said, uh, Ken, have you ever heard of the, the attorney general calling a private citizen and demanding that he give up an investigation? And uh, no one has ever heard of that. And, and somebody said, well, were you intimidated? Uh, yeah. <laughs> He's the freaking attorney. Who, who are you going to turn to to complain about the attorney general exactly. 
you know, even the even President Trump's like, what Trump's going to do is going to call him and say, hey, what, what are you roused and Schaefer for? And he would say, oh, you're interfering with my investigation. Mm-hmm. So w- there's a lot of mysteries on that as well that, that I don't think any uh, anybody is rationally or factually been able to explain. So that's why that's a long way of answering your question about yeah, what yeah, I, know. A- I don't know. But yeah. I know there's some other really big uh, um, pieces that need to be sorted out. So of course, once you turn over to the FBI, that means it's dead in the water. There. It was go- it's gone. Yeah. yeah, it's gone. Buried and done. It's yeah. gone. Well, to your point, you know there is all these things going on. It, it it's under it's it seems like it's under the the name the Great Reset, right? That's what we oh, keep hearing. God, yes. And, and the name that pops up is this Klaus Schwab. And I and I've done some research on the guy. I probably don't know nearly as much about him as you probably do. But he has he actually has a book called The Great Reset. And this this it's the World Economic Forum. He's in charge of this, right? And right. who who is this guy and, and what kind of reach does he actually have? So you know, just let me preface my comments by uh Listening to Germans with uh, large visions of order based on uh, economic uh, classes is probably never a good thing. I I think it was tried in 1933 and did not work out well. I recollect some history around that. Yeah. Yeah. So this guy is cut from the same cloth. What they're basically saying, what, what he and the World Economic Forum are saying is that the system, it's, and by the way, Hitler had the same philosophy. Mm-hmm. The system of capitalism is flawed. Everything must be reset based on the economic requirements of citizens, and all citizens must essentially be given the same access and same capacity to do everything completely equally based on the societal order that, that a government dictates. This is a power-down approach. This is the idea that the government will help you organize. This is, again, they're resetting. The reset is to make things better by the government determining uh, the equity of of capacity and the equity of interests based on social standing. Now, Social standing. Um, I, well, I'm being polite. I think they want to go a lot further than that, but yeah. you know, they, have, they have not said that yet, but I think it's going in that direction. But it's it's all about social order and that social order being enforced and, and implemented by a government which knows better than you. And uh, many many of these uh, things are kind of quietly being put out there. One of them, the Chinese have already implemented the idea of a credit system based on your social standing uh, uh, based on what the government thinks you are. Now, think about it. They call it a social credit score, right? A social credit score, yes. Right. That's part of the Great Reset. Uh, You you need to be essentially a good citizen. And if you are not a good citizen, I guess you don't deserve resources, right? Uh, Social order. Social order. They're going to order the society based on what they believe should be. And if you can't comply with that, then you're you're not socially acceptable. A bit frightening, I'd say. Uh, part of the, the same thinking is the idea is that, oh, you shouldn't own anything. The American dream of ownership is dead. Have you seen that? I think there's a number of publications now putting this out. The idea is you'll rent everything. I don't know if you own that home or I don't know if you guys are own, but the idea is you will own nothing and be happy. As a matter of fact, they're saying you'll be happier by having less stress because you don't have to own anything. It's all rented. Just give us your money and we'll take care of you. There's a great episode of Better Call Saul where, you know, uh, a, uh, a uh, old folks home does that. Just give us your money and we'll take care of you. 
And that's essentially what they're trying to do here is make everything uh, completely ambivalent to ownership, that basically only the elites, only the elites have all the resources and you will pay the elites for the privilege of, of letting them borrow your home, your entertainment, your vehicle, all of that. So uh, this utopian dream uh, by uh, Mr. Schwab and, and his elk is very much focused on a rehashing of, uh, of socialist, Marxist, uh, I would add, throw in their fascistic uh, concepts of the idea that government knows better than you uh, what is best for uh, society. Uh, that, that's, uh, I hope, is that a good summary from, from your perspective? Absolutely. Yeah. And, and, and it is a scary thing because, you know, especially in our country, we were founded on individualism, not yeah. collectivism. All right. You know, individual rights and freedoms, the pursuit of dreams and aspirations versus somebody telling you what those are going to be. Right. <laughs> and I've, and obviously we even see glimpses of that in the education system because it's compulsory. So, um, no, that's, that's absolutely terrifying to think that there's people that actually think that this is a good idea for our culture. I think it's partly uh, because the left has taken over the education system. They have so um, idealized the Soviet, the Soviet Union. Look, I lived through the Cold War. Mm -hmm. uh, Breadlines, uh, lack. I don't think the Soviets like that. I think that's why they're Russia now. But yet you have a whole class of people trying to uh, essentially uh, make it make this the, the communists look better. Oh, some guy recently said that there was more jobs created by the Soviet Union than America. It's like, yeah, not really. There's this propaganda that's per per permeated. And the other thing, it's an extension of this. I hope you don't mind. Can I bring up uh, critical race theory? Of is that course. okay? Yeah, of course. So critical race theory is very interesting. Um, I don't know, though, for those of you, because there's a big mystery about it. There's no mystery. Uh, the basic theory is this. Uh, you're racist. Uh, and that's the theory. It's like everybody is inherently racist. And uh, so if you accept critical race theory as fact, you're racist. And if you don't accept critical race theory uh, as fact, then you're really racist. You can't so win. It's, so it's racist and really racist. Yeah. I mean, oh, that's okay. it. So, I mean, so this passes as education now. I mean, it's like, are you kidding me? But it, it, it's, it's, it's a retooling, much like Klaus Schraub has taken mm -hmm. this other, this Marxist, Leninist, uh, uh, authoritarian imagery rebranding it the same thing with woke woke and and critical race theory is all marxism rebranded for purposes of using as a substitute of, of economics which is the the klaus thing a skin it is the method of dividing people so these two things are being essentially woven together for purposes of trying to undermine the basic uh foundation of our republic uh, and it's it, it's it's it is that simple that these forces, the Great Reset, wants to restructure everything based on a utopian idea that that a collectivized government uh, that you bow down to will know better than you how to how to force you to live your life, combined with the idea over here of a critical race theory that fundamentally says everybody's evil, there's no good in anybody's heart, and you need to accept that and atone by the fact that you need to bow down before the state, who will then determine who gets what regarding uh, the, the, the right to, to be a, a whole person. So it's, it's, a very, it's a very dangerous set of constructs being presented by the progressive left. 
Well, and, and this is um, in a conversation we had with uh, G. Edward Griffin, the author, uh, he, uh, he did a lecture in 69 about the communist plan, took it right out of the communist manifesto. And it mm -hmm. was literally to divide the country using race and class, which would eventually lead to civil conflict. Right. Right. And then right. now, do you think they've succeeded with this? I mean, have you ever seen us so divided? I, um, or at least no, the perception the of it? No, I, look, I've, um, I've worked in some form for every president since Jimmy, Jimmy Carter. Believe it or not, I actually worked as a, and, and I was actually going to high school in Lisbon and um, Lisbon, Portugal. And I actually was uh, during a summer, I worked for the embassy during the summer. And I actually worked on a detail for Jimmy Carter uh, when he was there visiting Lisbon. So I'm proud of that fact. With that said, I have seen a complete deterioration of the two parties to the point of where you have one party who believes the other party is its enemy and, and it must be destroyed. And that is the progressives. And because of the very thing you talked about regarding this philosophy of trying to create division, we're now to the point of where I think the left is so, so propagandized that they really believe their own uh, propaganda. And uh, that's why you see these vicious fights on Twitter. Some of you guys have watched, <laughs> which, yep. Yeah, and uh, I find it ironic. It's like, you know, I, uh, I don't know how I get in people's head, but apparently I do. And I, I don't believe I'm saying anything extraordinary. I'm just saying, dude, you know, look at your own history. And they get really upset about that. But that's where we're at right now. And, yeah, unfortunately, um, I think we're within 18 months of the cold civil war that we're now in going hot. And, I, I boy, I hate to say that. I, I, I don't I don't want to be an alarmist, but I, I have encouraged people to start looking realistically at where this is all going. And I don't think it's going in any positive direction. And I think uh, even if we if the conservatives win back Congress uh, in 22, uh, I, I don't know if we can prevent what I think uh, may come regarding um, the Democrats, progressives, whatever you want to call them, pushing mm -hmm. even harder for civil unrest. And remember, before you before we get up that, civil mm -hmm. unrest has been caused not by white supremacists. It's been caused by Antifa, and it's been caused by BLM. And those are the militant arms of the Democrat Party. Just, just want to throw it in there. What would, what would be their motivation if there's a civil war, quote-unquote, that they can impose tyranny? Is that what it is? Power. Yeah. It's all about power. Yeah. Uh, I don't believe for a minute that they believe uh, their own propaganda. I think this has become essentially their desire to maintain and, and, and expand their control over government. There are some, don't get me wrong, I think there are some people in their ranks who are true believers. They really do believe the utopian dream. But I don't believe for a minute Nancy Pelosi or Chuck Schumer or uh, Jill Biden, the president of the United States. Uh, that's a joke. That's a joke. Uh, uh, yeah, it's really, it's, really, it's really Susan Rice, right? Uh, that's right. So, <laughs> so... I don't believe these people believe any of that, but th this is about power for a, a group that includes their contact with people like Klaus Schwab and, and all those mm -hmm. guys. So this is this is not about anything good. This is not about uh, uh, helping people or all this. Uh, oh, we're the kinder, gentler party. Uh, we you know we care about minorities. We care about. Uh, all these things, but you know, we abort babies and we discriminate based on skin color. But you know, we're we're, we're really the good guys here. So I, I think it's all about their quest for power. You know, and they say these things: we care about minorities. But look at what's going on in Chicago. 
I mean, it's absolutely staggering how many people were shot. I think this past weekend, a good buddy of mine just told me that there was 50 shootings on one weekend. For one night, I, maybe? I, I don't even... No, over the weekend. I, I actually predict... I did a, a show last week. We do a, a series called Thought to Action. I went. We did a Second Amendment version of it. And I predicted uh, they, they probably have uh, eight, uh, you know, eight or nine deaths and 25 shootings, mm-hmm. double each. Uh, they had uh, nearly uh, 16, between 16 and 20 deaths and 50 shootings. So the simple fact is this. Black lives do not matter to the progressives. They don't. Um, there is literally, and you just uh, talked about it, there was a mass shooting in the city of Chicago, and it's not headline news. Why? Because the progressive-leaning uh, media will not talk about the deaths of blacks. Is that racist? I, I don't know. I, you know, and I'm sure if I said this thing and you guys put it out there, uh, is that racist? Because I'm pointing out that the left refuses to acknowledge or deal with the black on black black murder. Is that acceptable? Is that, you know, it, and it's not, I'm not a progressive. I don't control Chicago. Mm-hmm. Uh, nobody I know in the Republican Party has had anything to do with Chicago for decades. So is, is this just acceptable because the left does it and no one seems to care? I, I don't know. I don't know what the answer is. Um, well, it's, you know, to your point, it, it, and the point of many others, that this divide seems very intentional, and it's all through the media, right? And it gets people charged up, and they make poor decisions, and now, and and they're also attacking other areas, right? So now you have this attack on the Second Amendment. It, is that is that part of this plan? It, would it would it you know it would seem that if you disarm the population before you impose tyranny, that would go a lot better. <laughs> you know? Of course. It, so I deal with um, a lot of sheriffs, and a lot of these guys I deal with have declared themselves to be Second Amendment sanctuaries here in Virginia, especially, mm-hmm. because sheriffs are, uh, I think, the only constitutionally listed law enforcement officer, and a lot of these guys are very close to the people because they're elected by the people, and I, I respect yep. them a lot. And it's it's just looking at what they're doing to help prepare for what they see as the government, the federal government, coming to grab weapons, which has me a, a greatly concerned. And just today... If those who follow me on Twitter, I tweeted twice about uh, Jane Psaki's uh, way over the top comments regarding guns. Uh, she says there's been an increase in violent crime over the past few months. If you look at statistically back, it's more than five years or so. By the way, that's a lie. The, the, the stats are coming down, by the way. That's a blatant lie right there. And here I'm continuing a quote. Yes, mm-hmm. we believe that a central driver of violence is guns as gun violence and use of guns so uh that's what she said now what she she, it's it's not true guns are not violent um i i've got guns i've got guns all around me right now and they're not violent nor will they pick up and do something violent it's just it's just not the physics aren't there it's not going to happen but she but if you listen to her that's what is portrayed. So you can see that they're making this 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 case that oh, all this violence is all about the guns. No, it's it's not. It's about people who have uh, been allowed to perpetuate certain cultural norms that allow for violence to be uh, permissible as uh, expression. And in, in the case of the Democrats, uh, violence is express as as uh, expressible expressions of, of of political speech. It's very dangerous. But that's where we're at. And, of course, she goes on to say, look, I, I, I'm a big believer. 
of people being armed. And I, mm-hmm. I have no problem with braces, with uh, with uh, braces for, for pistols. You know, I use a couple. But according to her, braces make weapons more lethal. No, uh, the caliber of a weapon and uh, the, the size of the bullet have, de- have determined lethality. Someone being able to shoot accurately does not is not determine lethality. But again, it's prop- propaganda. They want to take braces away from people. They want to take uh, suppressors. So a suppressor has only been used once in a crime in the past 30 years, yet suppressors are a problem. It's all the propaganda of the left where they're trying to... And by the way, uh, where does the term assault rifle come from? Do you all know? Well, I mean, I just know that there's rifles, there's shotguns, there's pistols. I've, I don't see anything that's labeled assault rifle or assault yes, weapon. Yes, but they use it constantly. Do you know what the, the, the origin of the, the term assault rifle comes from? I do not, no. Sturmgewehr. <laughs> Hitler himself You're came kidding. up with the term assault rifle. So why does the left embrace and use a term that Adolf Hitler himself came up with? I, I'm not joking. I mean... Think about this. Think about this. And I and I tweet this out and get in trouble all the time. It's like, why do you all on the left choose to use a Hitler a, a term that Nazi Germans put together uh, for their Sturmgewehr, the STG forty four? Why do you do that? Oh, you're you. That's not true. It's like no, it's historically correct. There's no such thing as you point out. There's no such thing as an assault weapon. No. The only assault weapon in history was the Sturmgewehr that Adolf Hitler named. That's it. But that's they have adopted Nazi propaganda for purposes of trying to convince the public that guns are bad. And uh, I think I think their choice of words speaks for itself. Now, speaking of that, I mean, do you see any parallels? Uh, the actions from Nazi Germany back in the 30s, right? And also the yeah. Chinese Cultural Revolution, you know, 60s, 70s. Do you see any parallels to what these collectivists are trying to do right now? I do. And um, I would encourage, without going into a lot of detail, because it would take a, probably another hour to kind of go through my thinking on this. Mm-hmm. And not that I'm a great intellect. I'm an operative. I have uh, smart guys in the think tank who help me think. <laughs> I just, you know, I'm just here to help focus their thinking. But um, the 1933 is a, is a year that people ought to go look, look at uh, seriously regarding the Nazi Germans. 1933 and the, the, the rise of Hitler. Uh, during that period, uh, a lot of the things that we see being used by the left were being used by the Nazi party. The idea of division, the idea of, of creating victimhood, the idea of creating a, a, uh, the idea that, oh, guns are dangerous. We must take guns away from people for safety. Uh, there's a number of these constructs which the Nazis actually did use for purposes of coming to power. And one of the things people always say is like, oh, no, no, no. Hitler was a fascist. No, Hitler was a socialist. He mm-hmm. he used a different type of socialism, and it's in the freaking name, for God's sake. You know, the, the Nazis are the national socialists, for God's sake. Mm-hmm. His socialism was based on race. Uh, the communist Soviet uh, uh, socialism was based on on uh, more on uh, economics, on economic, you know, power to the people and all that. Claptrap. So Hitler was very uh, committed to establishing control over means of production, which he did. And everybody says, oh, no, no, no. Hitler allowed free enterprise. No, he didn't. He actually was able to carve down and put into very small packages, manageable packages, uh, elements of control, elements of of, uh, production into his control. Thirteen companies, 
ended up basically manufacturing everything for the German people. There was competition within between those companies, but that's it. It wasn't global competition. It was competition. And the other thing is like, oh, well, uh, Hitler encouraged unions. Yeah, one union. They created one union that had to be approved by the state. The state controlled the union, not the other way around. Mm -hmm. So you take this this control that Hitler put together, this collectivization of, of, of means of production, of means of, of um, expression, it became very dangerous. And Goebbels, Go, Go, Goebbels, Joseph Goebbels took over media. You had to have approved uh, uh, social uh, acceptable museums. Like the, the Nazis took over museums because they, oh, certain things were not acceptable. So, uh, you know, when you look at... Um, the large control of, of big tech and media and suppression of free speech. If you look at the, the Democrats push to control more and more of medical uh, of medical things, production things, it, it's there's a lot of parallels there. Mm -hmm. I think people ought to be looking at. So I'm I, again, I'm not comparing yet. I'm not comparing yet the, the progressive left to the Nazis, but. But uh, boy, there's a sure they, they sure are cherry picking some of the techniques used by the Germans for purposes of uh, advancing their political causes. It does, yeah. It absolutely seems that way. Um, and you know, one of the things, well, we asked, what do you what do you think the what do you think the end game is here? I mean, there's been so much change, so many radical changes, uh, and they use this seems like this pandemic is used to in, to impose it on people because hey, what can we get away with? Right. What's what's the end game here in your uh, in your uh, from your perspective well so i think that's the thing uh, the the beginning of the end game is to suppress and silence any speech that uh goes against your party's uh objectives and goals mm -hmm. so as you've noticed uh over the past six months biden and company are uh uh, putting out there that there's white supremacists. Ooh, they're everywhere. Did you know that? I, did you check behind you? Look behind your chair. They may be there right now. They just, according to him, they're everywhere. Now we all know that's not true. That, that it's 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 patently and provably false. But you have members of his administration, to include the attorney general, saying the largest threat we face is white supremacy. I, you know, between you and me. I'm pretty sure that uh, not a single white supremacist was involved in any shootings in Chicago over this past weekend. Pretty, just saying. Mm -hmm. So why would they be saying that? Why would they be setting up this straw man? It's because they're trying to push everybody into the direction of, uh, especially the, the federal government, of being in a position to go after people who are, quote unquote, anti-government. Oh, you're anti-government. Uh, you must be a white supremacist. Therefore, uh, we need to do something to counter you. And that countering means uh, reduction in free speech. It means uh, demonization. It means actually using the FBI and other elements for purposes of going after individuals who disagree with the uh, for simply engaging in political speech, mm -hmm. and disagreeing with the administration. That's where it's all going. It's going on like that in DOD. This uh, General Austin, SecDef driven hunt for extremism in DOD is same thing. It's like uh, they're not after a white supremacist. I don't I, I know that the, you, you all may not know this, but anybody who joins the military has to go through a basic background check. You don't just to get to get to mm -hmm. sign up and go get guns and go do things. There's actually a process. And if you have a security clearance, there's even more vetting involved. So that's where we're at, is we're at a, a point where the political party in charge 
is now trying to, to mobilize the government uh, bureaucracy for purposes of suppressing its its the, the, the political speech of its adversaries. And where that's all going to go, I believe, is to, uh, if you can't have political expression, uh, you will uh, push people into the position of having political anarchy. And the anarchy we're talking about here could well be a civil war. Um, wow, that's, I mean, I think, I think, People really need to let that sink in. I don't think that's what anybody would ever want. I mean, if we know our side doesn't want it, I don't right. know. About it. Of course. That, well, you're right. I mean, our side doesn't want it. And, and, and it seems like there are people that do. I guess that's a good point. Um, well, and I think I think it's very, very clear that if Americans are united as one, uh, you know, one country and, and we're all pushing towards the same thing, which is equal opportunity and freedom and right. liberties, we can't be overtaken. No, and if we're together, and I'm talking all races of all creeds, colors, and cultures in this country, if we're all united together, there's no way anybody could ever take us down. But by but by dividing us, that seems to be working very effectively for them right now. Well, I think there's a certain country where a certain virus came from with benefits from all this, and I think they're mm-hmm. trying to encourage it. Uh, the Chinese have been very big in, in investing in uh, control of their media and Hollywood. I did an article recently. Um, uh, it was in the Epoch Times a few mm-hmm. days ago. Stop stopping celebrities Hollywood coddling. Hollywood, uh, as you know, is really bent the knee to, to China, and so is social media. Uh, one of my uh, friends, uh, I mentioned him earlier, Joe Dunford, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs, Joe Dunford, mm-hmm. uh, actually called out Google for basically helping China. Uh, suppress uh, the speech of its own people and not cooperating with our DOD. Why would you do that? And I think that's where we're at right now is that some of this is going in a direction that indicates that certain political uh, forces uh, are very much aware of the the internal struggles between our two political parties that they will take full advantage of. I think the Chinese would like nothing better than to see a, a globe, a world where we are defeated uh, politically without having to fire a shot where they become the dominant, you know, and people, I don't think people understand. It's like, look back at history. History is full of, of great countries rising to great levels and falling quickly. And, yep. uh, uh, it's, you know, there's a reason the Roman empire still isn't going just saying, and, uh, we need to recognize that, uh, we're at a brink of a big change if we don't recognize that our enemies will take full advantage of our internal struggles and uh, and conflicts. What do you encourage people to do, uh, Colonel? Buy guns, ammo, and food. And I'm not joking. I think you need to be prepared at the individual level at all times. And this isn't about uh, pl- politics. It's just, you know, I, I'm doing this in my basement. I've got probably about uh, for my family, about uh, probably about a, a, a two weeks of, of food, maybe a little bit more, and some water, and you know we prepared. We we in, in our neighborhood, our neighbors are all you know kind of the same. They're all kind of retired. One's a retired uh, spy like myself, and others uh, you know we're all kind of we all recognize the need to 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 be prepared and help each other should something go wrong. And I'm talking about uh, electromagnetic pulse. You could have a coronal mass, a CME, coronal mass ejection from the sun that takes out the power grid. 
uh, you could have bad storms. We've had uh, the derecho come through, large storms come through and take power and communications down for days. So I think every individual needs to invest in their own survival no matter what. Uh, and especially mm-hmm. in a big city, boy, if you're in a big city and 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 infrastructure fails, 48 hours and people are going to be killing each other for food and water. I'm just I'm just saying. Yeah. So you be prepared. Uh, so past the individual level, I think people people have to recognize that they must be politically invested in their own future. That is to say, that uh, we can no longer sit back and believe that. Uh, politics will take care of themselves, that the other side is just misguided. They're just misguided. They just don't understand. Well, that is true. But through their inability to understand, they've now started the process of uh, weaponizing speech and Mm -hmm. weaponizing institutions against those they disagree with. And that's that's where the line has been crossed. So that's where people have to really understand that that's where uh, they must show up. They must vote. I would encourage folks to consider running for office if they think they have something to offer. It's not easy, but it's it's necessary. And people need to be much more invested in their own political survival in addition to their individual survival. Those are the things people, I think, should do at this point. Very much appreciated, and thank you for sharing that wisdom um, with our with our listeners. Um, Colonel, you're Colonel Schaefer. You're the you're the president of the London Center for Policy Research. Where can people find out more information regarding your efforts there? So yeah, LondonCenter.org. We are based in New York. It's named after my late boss, Dr. Herb London. This is a mm-hmm. common. I was like, oh, what did you move to London? It's like, no, I don't. <laughs> I don't live in London. So we are actually based in, in lower Manhattan near Wall Street. Um, uh, I actually run it from northern Virginia, believe it or not. I've, you know, COVID has taught us all we don't have to actually commute to work to actually run something. And if you go on our website, uh, we have a Thought to Action podcast uh, where we go through issues. I uh, just had Monica Crowley be out here soon. We had Rick Rennell on a few days ago. Uh, we do a, a spectrum of things. We have some very interesting senior fellows. Dr. Steve Hatfield is one of our, is our virologist. Uh, as you might know, Steve was the guy that Mueller, Robert Mueller, tried to pin yep. the uh, anthrax attacks on. Steve made a lot of money suing the FBI for that false allegation. Speaking of conspiracies, just saying, <laughs> turned out that Miller went, at, you know, Mueller went after the wrong guy. That's a surprise, and then tried and just ruined his life. So Steve is now one of our senior fellows. Mm-hmm. Uh, we got a number of other, you know, notable folks who have, have joined us. We uh, we don't consider ourselves partisan. We kind of we have more conservatives than than uh, liberals, but uh, you know, we we try to to maintain a, a balance. And then um, the, we work Second Amendment. We work, uh, we're trying to get funding right now to do a study that uh, examines the parallels between woke and social justice and Mao. Imagine that. Are there parallels? Yeah, I'm pretty sure there are. Mm-hmm. And uh, we also do things on environment. I've got, this may, you might find this strange. One of my degrees is in environmental studies. And one of the things I constantly try to do is call out the environmental studies movement. By the way, did you know, according to thinking back in the 80s when I got my degree, that we'd be living in another ice age by now, that we're supposed to be like in five feet of snow and and dying? You know, uh, Leonard Nimoy talked about it in in a special. That's right. That's right. Yeah. So. And by the way, peak oil, another theory back in the, it's like, man, we're going to run out of oil in the 90s. We're all going to be living like the Flintstones with cars that we have to, you know, run with our feet. Didn't happen. Propaganda never stops, does it? Never stops. Never, never stops. So, well, I, I live on the Atlantic Ocean here. And according to Al Gore, I'm supposed to be underwater, but I don't see I any water out there. No, it's 
It's crazy. Uh, there you go. Yeah. So, my, so we we, I think the, uh, the summary is we try to examine w- objective fact yep. and try to establish an understanding of how we can we can create policies uh, based on objective fact, which actually accomplish something. And it's a yep. it's a rarity, uh, both in think tanks and in Washington D.C. for people to do that sort of thing. Well, we're, we're going to have a link to your website at the London Center for Policy Research in the description. We're also going to have uh, an opportunity for people to see where they can get your books, right? So you have Operation Dark Heart and you have The Last Line. Where's the best place for people to get access to those, those yeah, books? Yeah, at this point, uh, Amazon is uh, okay. sells, you know, Operation Dark Heart came out uh, 10 years ago, by the way, and it's still uh, I still get royalties from it, so I'm very proud of that. Dark Heart is kind of a uh, it's 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 actually based on my uh, time in command of an operating base called Operating Base Alpha, where we did things in Sub-Saharan Africa, and then uh, uh, also uh, my time in Afghanistan when I was operations officer running all the defense intelligence agencies operations. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's a good book because it talks about the 9/11 stuff. My disclosure to Phil Zelikow. Uh, you might remember ten years ago they they the arm the army approved publication. And then Defense Intelligence Agency freaked out and, and forced DOD to buy the first 10,000 copies. Uh, it was great advertising. Boy, I, I couldn't have thought of a better, you know, a better advertising scheme than getting the Defense Intelligence Agency to both validate me as an intelligence officer and tell people what I was saying was so dangerous they shouldn't read it. Boy, it couldn't have been better. Didn't and, they even uh, redact a bunch of it? Well, they did. They did. You can still figure it out. I mean, it redacted. Sure. We won our First Amendment lawsuit, by the way. Uh, we just had, you know, the publisher has told me, it's like, yeah, as long as it's selling, we're not going to change it. It's fine. So it still sells just fine. So and then my second book was The Last Line, which is actually based. We we were looking at we kind of figured out that we were going to have problems with the southwest border back in 20. 2012, 2013, we published mm-hmm. the book back then, kind of outlining what we're seeing now. And just so you know, uh, the action in that book happened somewhere else. They, they get really upset when I talk about real operations. I don't know why. So we took things I did from other places and we put it in Mexico so they couldn't get too upset. They got upset still, but they couldn't get too upset because, you know, it's just fiction. We're just talking here. It's not, you know, we're not really talking about things that happen. But if those things happen, they happen somewhere else, just saying. And uh, it's, right. it's about the southwest border. And we, we, we combine a lot of things that I did into a fictional kind of telling of a story of the southwest border. So I think people would enjoy the last line as well. Well, fantastic. Thank you for that. And Colonel sure. Schaefer, I know I know we're up against it. Um, I, I appreciate you spending time with us today. I just have one last question for sure. you. And I, you kind of alluded to it a few minutes ago. We have been a country that has been, you know, very partisan you know, it's you're either a Democrat or you're a Republican. You're either liberal or you're conservative. And it's I'm going to vote for my guy. I'm going to vote for my guy. Do you think that with where we are right now, that it has gone beyond partisan politics, that there is something bigger that we need to be aware of? And, and, and what is that? And what do you and, and what do you think that means and what people should take away from that? So the key to the success of President Trump was not his being a conservative. And I think that's a big misnomer. He was a populist. Many of the issues he picked up, a lot of people who were who just felt they were being left out of the political process really appreciated. That's why I think he got uh, more votes the second time. I think, I think he did very well the second time, much better than he's been given credit for. I'll leave it at that. Mm-hmm. And it, 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 the idea of supporting 
the development, especially in Michigan, good paying jobs for the blue collar workers. I'm all for that. I've always been for that. Is that a Republican issue? No, not really, but I think it's the right thing to do. Uh, Steve Moore and I discussed a number of times uh, the issue of, of uh, holding China accountable and actually invoking uh, trade barriers, uh, uh, you know, basically creating um, the requirement for tariffs. Tariffs was very controversial, but it helped the industry. Yep. So my point to you is, uh, I think we are past Democrat and Republican, and I think people need to recognize that. And maybe that's the path forward. Uh, one of the people I've talked to several times uh, is Tulsi Gabbard. Uh, I like mm -hmm. Tulsi. Uh, I, she and I disagree a lot on politics, but uh, um, I, I've had a number of really uh, helpful, com you know. And by the way, as, as, as controversial as I am, she, we would sit down and still have good conversations about national security. Yeah, and so I should respected be. that. And I respected that. So uh, there are people on both sides of the political aisle who basically have left their traditional political constructs. Um, and I, again, I think populism, we can all agree that things are bad in certain areas and we should fix those things. And boy, by the way, Bernie Sanders used to be a, a uh, anti-borders, you know, guy, wanted control because he recognized, like many of us, if you flood the market with cheap labor, your blue your, your blue collar workers suffer. You actually ruin your own economy. So I'm not anti-immigration. I'm anti-illegal immigration and I'm pro-American worker. Does that make me a conservative? Does that make me a, a, a Democrat? I don't know, uh, because to me, the idea that American workers should be given uh, the opportunity to have a good career based on uh, their government encouraging industry to grow and thrive is the right thing to do. And this is where I think uh, there's an opportunity for people in both parties who feel that they've been left behind to continue to drive towards something that's a lot more populist and a lot less corrosive. Uh, that's where I hope we can go to prevent uh, I think there's more people who think like in, in those terms than not. They just haven't been very vocal about it. Uh, but that's where I'm hopeful that the populism, things that we can all agree that are good for American workers, good for American middle class, those things can be what we focus on uh, and, and try to avoid any more rancor between the two parties. Well, Colonel Schaefer, answer or not, but that's no, it's awesome. That. No, we, I appreciate it. That does give us a, as a great answer, and um, uh, and, and we thank you for that. And again, once again, if uh, uh, and down in the description, there'll be a link to to Colonel Schaefer's website, London Center for Policy Research. You can also find a link to uh, uh, Operation Darkheart and the Last Line, both of Colonel Schaefer's books, as well. And with that, I just want to thank you again for coming on Liberty Monks and sharing your expertise and time with us, Colonel. Thanks for having me. Give me all this time to talk. Uh, you know, I can talk <laughs> up a storm, so I appreciate the opportunity. Absolutely. And uh, God bless you, sir. God bless everybody listening out there. And God bless America. Um, take care and have a great evening.